The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. Theflycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing and wait for it films. For action-packed fly fishing videos and camera-related content, check out Wait For It Films on YouTube. Based out of British Columbia, Wait For It Films can also be found on the web at www.thewaitcreativeco.com. You, you, you are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing '97 podcast. My very first show that I ever did for fly tying was one of the fly fishing shows, was a national show. I skipped past the local and the regional shows because I'm talking with Jason one day and he tells me that Ben Foremsky, who runs, owns the fly fishing show, was going to be in town that weekend and they were going to do a cast and blast. And, you know, pheasant hunting in the morning. Uh, go for a steelhead in the afternoon. And he goes, why don't you come along and bring your flies? Jason had been pushing me to, when I left Abbott Laboratories, the CEO decided that they really didn't need an IT group. And I was in IT. And so they let a lot of people go. A lot. Hmm. Now, I was lucky enough where I did not have to work. I could retire. And so Jason pushed me a lot to say, why don't you follow your dreams? You don't have to get a full-time job. You don't have to worry about bringing in money through Walmart. So, you know, a job like that, any job. Expand it. Think about what you want to do. So he kind of pushed me towards, you love to tie flies. Why don't you try it out? And so Ben came into town and I brought my flies and he critiqued them. And it's like, oh, great. He's, never going to talk to me again. And he goes, I'll give you an application. You, you can be in any of the shows that we have space for. Wow. So my very first show was a national show at Lancaster. <laughs> That's awesome. Huh. And you know, there, I, I had met Lefty Cray prior to that. But in the middle of the show, Jason brings over Lefty Cray and Ed Javorowski. I, I just, I just blew his name, Jabrowski. And he brings them over to my booth. And those two guys spent about 15 minutes talking to me at the booth. And I can see the guys on either side of me staring at me going, who are you? You said, <laughs> you said you've met, this is your first show. And you have Lefty Cray, who, who is very friendly. He rarely talks to anybody in the show. <laughs> because they're moving them from spot to spot. Lefty, you got to be over here and do this demonstration. Lefty, you got to be over here and give this class. He had no downtime. So I have two of the best casters in the country, possibly in the world, in my booth talking to me for 15 minutes in the show. <laughs> and it wasn't much later I realized what that really meant. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. We focus on guides, conservation, resort managers, gear, and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. Theflycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing. The Fly Crate offers a monthly fly club. We select patterns every month for your home waters. With membership, you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area, along with the Fly Crate's guide magazine, the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door, some sweet stickers. Discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now. Theflycrate.com. Here's your host, Mark Hopley. Okay, cool. Well, let's just jump into this thing. You ready? All right. Okay, so we uh, welcome to this edition. I'm your host, Mark Hopley, and we're going to do what we always do, seek out passionate people in the fly fishing, fly tying space, get their stories, how they came to find fly fishing, what it brings into their world, and uh, we're going to talk side hustles. We, we tend to do that a lot on the, on the podcast. We've got Tom Starmack out of Zoetic Flies, Custom Flies, out of Ontario, Wisconsin, fly tire business owner, uh, Tom's flies, he ties a mean fly, uh, appeared in American 
uh, Angler Magazine. Uh, the book, Nymph Masters, you'll find some of his patterns and has tied at the fly fishing show and uh, spends a lot of time in the Driftless area, has fished all around uh, Scientific Angler Pro Staff, TFO Pro Staff, and Umqua Pro Guide. Tom, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on the show, Mark. You know, I I always like to kind of start the show and figure out how you came to start in in the world of fly fishing. Where did where did your passion start? We have to go back a ways for this, I bet. Uh, unfortunately, quite a ways. Um, Let's go there. My, my dad was a fisherman. I uh, grew up in Minnesota, so walleye was king. And so when I first started fishing there. It was walleye and panfish and eventually moved towards bass a little bit. And then around 13, 14, you know, I was reading in Fisherman and um, Fishing Facts magazines. And I read this thing about fly fishing. I'd never really even heard about it before. Nobody in Minnesota fly fishes up. I was north of the Twin Cities. Right. And would always go up north to fish for walleye and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I saw this thing about fly fishing. It's like. Well, I need to try this. So I went, bought myself a fly rod, fly rod and a uh, Wapsie beginner kit and just started playing around. Uh, did it for a few years until I got a little too busy with sports in high school. Left the fly fishing, continued to fish and picked it up again years later um, after we'd moved to Illinois. Mm-hmm. And I met some friends who they would fly fish and they would take these trips up to Michigan or down to the White River in Arkansas. And I couldn't go because I didn't fly fish anymore. So I had to pick it up so I could go on these trips with my friends. Hmm. So I picked it up again, maybe 15 years ago. Cool. So if you look back at your journey, so it sounds like you started tying, you know, quite a ways back. But if you had to kind of look at the people that inspired you, the, the people that influenced you, and, and this a lot of times this is people that maybe you met at the fly fishing show or you've seen on TV or seen on social media, but who would you cite as influences that kind of um, steered your journey a little bit? The, the biggest influence has to be Jason Randall. Yeah. Um, author, speaker, great guy. Uh, we have med- originally met him when he was a vet. Him and his wife were vets, and we brought our dogs to him. Hmm. And he's the group I was talking about where Jason picked up fly fishing from a friend of ours called George, um, old school fly fisherman out of Pennsylvania. And so they started doing more of that, and I started picking it up from Jason. And Jason started doing uh, the magazine articles, wrote a lot for American Angler. And once I started picking up fly fishing a little bit more, he was more into writing. And we'd take these long trips, like I said, Michigan, Arkansas, whatever. There's a lot of time in the car. And so we're talking fishing. (laughs) And through Jason, I learned from Lefty Cray, uh, Joe Humphreys, Tom Baltz, Gary Borger, because Jason was talking to these guys. He was already on the show circuit learning stuff like that. So I learned from some of the best in the world through Jason. Hmm. That's that's a pretty good list. I, I mean, I think uh, you talk about Gary Borger. That guy um, was so dialed in so long ago. You know what I mean? Like um, that whole fly fishing show, why don't you tell us a little bit about what that means to you? Cause I know you spend a lot of time at those shows. What does that bring into your world? Uh, it gives me a chance to talk about fly fishing all day long and not get bored. Yeah. Um, when I, fr- my very first show that I ever did for fly tying was one of the fly fishing shows was a national show. I skipped past the local and the regional shows because I'm talking with Jason one day and he tells me that Ben Ferensky, who runs, owns the fly fishing show, was going to be in town that weekend and they were going to do a casting blast. And, you know, pheasant hunting in the morning, uh, go for steelhead in the afternoon. And he goes, why don't you come along and bring your flies? 
Jason had been pushing me to, when I left Abbott Laboratories, the CEO decided that they really didn't need an IT group. And I was in IT. And so they let a lot of people go. A lot. Hmm. Now, I was lucky enough where I did not have to work. I could retire. And so Jason pushed me a lot to say, why don't you follow your dreams? You don't have to get a full-time job. You don't have to worry about bringing in money through Walmart. So, you know, a job like that, any job. Expand it. Think about what you want to do. So he kind of pushed me towards, you love to tie flies. Why don't you try it out? And so Ben came into town and I brought my flies and he critiqued them. And it's like, oh, great. He's never going to talk to me again. And he goes, <laughs> I'll give you an application. You, you can be in any of the shows that we have space for. Wow. So my very first show was a national show at Lancaster. <laughs> That's awesome. Huh. And you know, there I, I had met Lefty Cray prior to that. But in the middle of the show, Jason brings over Lefty Cray and Ed Jabrowski. Hmm. I, I just I just blew his name, Jabrowski. And he brings them over to my booth. And those two guys spent about 15 minutes talking to me at the booth. And I can see the guys on either side of me staring at me going, who are you? You said, <laughs> you said you've met, this is your first show and you have lefty Cray who, who is very friendly. He rarely talks to anybody in the show because they're moving them from spot to spot. Lefty, you got to be over here and do this demonstration. Lefty, you got to be over here and give this class. He had no downtime. So I have two of the best casters in the country, possibly in the world in my booth talking to me for 15 minutes in the show. <laughs> That's and it wasn't so much later I realized what that really meant. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. That's cool. And and so, okay, so here's the thing. We're going to get into Zoetic Flies. We're going to get to your custom patterns. We're going to talk tying because I, I have lots of tying questions for you. I love talking tying on here. Um, but, but first I want to get to know you a little bit in your day-to-day, -to -day, Tom. You ready for a few questions to kind of get a feel for your area? All right, so when you're headed to your favorite, you know, stretch of water, what is playing in the truck on the stereo? What kind of tunes are you listening to? Uh, none. Okay. Because my current vehicle does not have a CD player. <laughs> I, I hate listening to the radio. The music on the radio, it ignores me because there's too much talk and it's not the music I want. Right. So my truck would be loaded up with the CDs. Well, they don't put them in there anymore. And I haven't downloaded them to a radio. Or, yeah. or, so yeah. what I'll do is I'll listen to uh, audio books. Okay. Maybe listen to some podcasts. Right. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, so if you're headed to your favorite stretch of water, Tom, what what is one pattern? And, and you're a perfect person to ask this. And I know I, sometimes I get flack for this because it's who the heck's going to fish one pattern all their life. But... More often than not, you know, whether it's a Pertagon or a Mayfly, what are you reaching for normally? Um, it's called a pink hog. Okay. It's my version of a cross between the pink squirrel and a tungsten brush hog. Hmm. But it's a little bit simplified. Um, it's, it's a lot like the pink hog, but the body is dubbed and it's sparsely dubbed. Okay. Uh, so it kind of looks a little bit more like the tungsten brush hog, but a little bit sparser. I have two versions. One is a black bead with a very small pink collar on it Okay. that I use more as a, a heavy dropper. Another version that I go to mostly because I do a ton of euro nymphing is a pink bead version. Drop the collar, replace the black bead with a pink bead, and it's a larger size. Hmm. So I can euro nymph that. And that has taken fish everywhere I've tried it. Is that tied on a jig hook or is that on a straight shank? What kind of hook is that tied on? Jig hook. Yeah. Um, my, my heavy flies for urolymphine, I prefer to be jig. Okay. Uh, just because you're less prone to hook on the bottom. Yeah. 
but more importantly, you're more likely to hook the fish in the upper jaw. Yeah, hundred percent. You lose, yeah, you lose less fish that way. Hmm. Where do you get your fix on fishing when you're not in your waders? So, is it the flies? You know, the shops show. Sorry, fly show circuit, or is it you know social media? Is there a fly shop you frequent? Where do you get your fix when you're not fishing? Well, it used to be the shows. I would do two to three national shows and a couple of regional shows, local ones. Um, and then a lot of my friends fished, you know, so we'd, we'd take trips together and we'd talk that. Um, my local fly shop is the Driftless Angler in Viroqua. Okay. And uh, Matt Wagner and Jerry Meyer, great people. And I've seen them at TU meetings. I talked to, to their TU group one time a few years ago. And so I can talk to them. Now I'll stop in sometimes and say, Matt, I've got a problem. Weeds are tall. Give me some place that you're willing to give me. Not your secret place, but give me a place that you're willing <laughs> that you think might still be open. And, and I don't have to, you know, bring a brush hog with me to, to clear a path. Right. And just try someplace different. Yeah, that that driftless area is something else, and we're we're gonna dig into that a little bit. I'm, I suspect. Let's talk sports. Is is there a sports team that you follow? Um, maybe back from the the school days, or is there some pro teams you follow? Um, are you a football guy, baseball? What is? You mentioned you football. did football. I, yeah, I, I grew up playing football. Okay. And loved the Minnesota Vikings. Grew up in Minnesota. Right on. And it's been a love-hate relationship for years with them, unfortunately. <laughs> I know a lot of Vikings fans, so I've, I I know what you mean. But yeah, so so and, close. Who's your favorite Viking of all time? Or name a couple if you want. Uh, Fran, or Fran's good. I'll I'll go for some not quite as much. I loved Chuck Foreman. Okay. Uh, he was Roger Craig before there was Roger Craig. Right. Huh. Catch it. Neural run it. Outstanding player, career nature. And I loved uh, Carl Eller. Yeah. Because he, he played it like a monster. You know, Paige got a lot of the publicity. Right. And justifiably so. But Eller was a beast out there. And when I played football, I always liked the idea of I get to hit somebody on every play. I played mostly guard or linebacker. Okay. And some, no, nose tackler, a little defensive end. Good. So the whole purpose of football is to hit people. And <laughs> no, I, I did that for years until doctor said, I can guarantee you an operation if you keep playing. Right. Did and you play like, high school ball or or co- high college? Yeah, okay. played through high school. Heard it um, before my scene in my junior year, okay. and back then surgery on knees was more butchery. Right? You no, know, they they couldn't fine tune it like this. And it's like I played this for fun. I had no scholarship riding on it. I can quit. Right. And when it healed up years later, I switched over to playing soccer. Okay. Uh, with friends. But I never cared a whole lot for watching soccer. I'd rather play it than watch it. But I still love to play football. Whereabouts did you grow up? Grew up just north of Minneapolis. Okay. Yeah. Um, in a place called Brooklyn Center. Okay. And when we first moved out there, I could cross the street and there were woods. You go a half mile up and there's still a farm. So we were still suburbs, but there was rural enough right by us and that you know, quickly got overgrown. But for years, when, uh, when I was old enough to get out of sight of my brothers without my mom going, where did he go this time? <laughs> um, no. So I had na- a lot of nature close by. Yeah. Sounds, sounds pretty good. Um, if you look back at your history in fly fishing, tying, why do you do this? What's the lesson that you learn? Like, what does fly fishing bring to you? Uh, it gets me outdoors. And if I don't 
think I got to catch a fish. I got to catch a fish. And you just take a look around me. I'm in the part of the country that I want to be in. I love the mix of the woods, the water, the agriculture, and the farm animals. There, there's hills, but there's not mountains, but there, there's larger hills. I love this type of country. Yeah. And with the spring creeks that they have here, I don't need a boat. I don't have to tow anything. I don't even need waders because most of the time I need, I'm not even walking in the water. That's and that's a fun uh, kind of fishing too because you can cover a lot of ground, right? Yeah. And the nice thing about here is, let's say I pull up to Timber Cooley, one of the biggest named streams around, and somebody's in the spot I was going to fish. I'll just go up or downstream to another spot. Somebody else is there. Okay, let's hop over to Bohemia instead. Somebody's at Bohemia. Well, I can go to Rulans or I can go over to camp. There are in my county over 60 classified trout streams and 250 miles of public access. Wow. That's key, isn't it? That, that it, I mean, it's one thing to have the streams. It's another thing to be able to access them. Wisconsin has done a great job with public access. And that's just my county. I've got three other counties around me that have probably as much water or nearly as much water as Vernon County does. Hmm. And so for me, I'm in the, in a country that I love. I can get to the stream. I can fish. I can watch bald eagles. Maybe I see some, some mink or ferret deer going through there. Yeah. And it's, it's peaceful. When you're not fly fishing, what are you normally doing day to day? Uh, there, there is no normal right now. Yeah. Well, because from Illinois to Wisconsin to an old farm, um, we bought at the end of 2019. We moved up here permanently, uh, end of last September. The house is much smaller. There's a lot of repair work to do to bring it up to date, but because of the housing market, we decided we, we can't miss this opportunity and so we're up here two to three years sooner than we thought we would be. There, you, there's a rumor that you may or may not be fly tying in the chicken coop. Former chicken coop. Former, former chicken coop. Former See, chicken. you got to stress the Two former. Story chicken coop. <laughs> the, um, the house is somewhere between the mid 1880s to 1915 range is the best guess on the house. Wow. And it, it was a working dairy farm. And there was a chicken coop. And the previous owners bought this as a summer place. And they added, added a second story to the chicken coop for a bunkhouse for their kids. Hmm. And since the house is much smaller than it was, the coop's going to be my tying area. Well, we got the place. And in between the walls is straw for insulation. Wow. And, and we, we yank the windows out because the windows just reek. And bleach the walls. Actually, when I say we, let me correct this. There's a, a couple of guys named Toad and JP, the contractors who do all the hard work. Um, they fixed that place up great. I've got car siding across the top. I've got a nice floor. Heating and air conditioning in the in there. Lots of lighting. Yeah. It's Dave. What what's important to you in a tying room? Like, because we all spend so, and you spend a lot of time at the Vice. But I, I, you know, is it a view? Is it is it um, a quiet spot? Is it bright light for you? Like, what what makes a good tying spot for you? Uh, I need bright light, e even with a light over the Vice. I need good light around the whole area to help wash out shadows. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I prefer quiet. So if I want to put on some music or a book on tape or something like that, it's my choice. I don't hear everything. Mm -hmm. uh, my view is great because I can look out three sides of the coop and see the woods. Nice. If, if you had to look at your career so far to date, 
what's the best gig you've had? Like the best job you've had? Are you doing it now? Is it is it something you've done in the past? Or um... it's definitely what I'm doing now. Hmm. Um, because I enjoyed my work in IT, and I enjoyed the people I worked with in IT. But it was a job. The, the closest job that I ever had other than fly tying and getting to fish and take people fishing in that is I worked one summer in college for a company that did uh, insurance repair work, storm damage, fire, things like that. My tools were a sledgehammer and a sawzall. <laughs> they didn't let me fix up, but I get to, got to destroy everything. You're tearing down. <laughs> yeah. 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 So for me, that was fun. But for pure enjoyment of the job itself and the work, it, it's a fly tying. And, and there's a couple of different examples. You know, I sold some flies. Yeah. They, I sold some flies in Atlanta the first time I was there. And I get back the following year and I, a couple of guys said, oh, we were worried that you weren't here. We didn't see your name on the list. And then we realized you were under fly tires, not exhibitors. You know, when somebody likes what you showed them, mm-hmm. like what you tied for them, they come back looking for you specifically. That's got to be a good feeling. That's, that is great. Yeah. Uh, and then I'll have um, Ed Ingle ask me for flies. Hmm. goes, can you tie me up some of your flash, Mitch? Yeah, no problem. You know, here, here's a guy who's a great tire asking me for some flies. That's that's good stuff. We're chatting with Tom Starmack from uh, Zoetic Flies, Custom Tide Flies out of uh, Ontario, Wisconsin. I know, I know, I, I think I have an idea of how much time you spend at the vice, and I'd really like to focus on tying and your, and uh, simultaneously your business. But what I want to ask you, Tom, is first off, tell us about your setup. You know, what kind of vice do you like to tie on? Uh, maybe throw some tools you like to use. Um, first off, what's the primary tool, uh, the vice? What do you, what are you using these days? Uh, these days, I'm using a Regal Revolution with the stainless steel jaws. Okay. Um, I, have... I like that because it's previous to this, I tied on a Ranzetti Traveler. Yeah. Very good vice, very lightweight, but a little bit more futzy to change sizes of flies. Okay. And the Regal, once it grabs onto it, it's not going to let go. Yeah, I've heard and, that. Yeah, and it also has some heft to it because depending on what I'm tying, I'll sometimes kind of grab onto the vice a little bit as I crank down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that thing's not going to go anywhere. What's the most difficult pattern in your mind to tie? Like, is it spun, spinning deer hair? Is it, um, you know, doing some of these these nymph patterns that are maybe a little more eccentric? What, what do you find, where do you get your challenge day-to-day at the oh, vice? It's, it's definitely deer hair. <laughs> because I don't tie a lot of them, um, and I only tie them when I have to, mm-hmm. I'm not very good at it. So there's a lot of, I'll start it, and it's like, I just don't like the way this looks. It's gone. Let's start over again. And so for me, because I don't do it a lot, is is deer hair. Yeah. Something I find interesting talking with tires, it's amazing how specialized we get. You know, like somebody might be super good at tying midges or somebody might be really good at, at spinning deer hair or somebody's just really good at tying those bait fish patterns. Um, how, how important to you is it to maintain some diversity in your tying, you know, so you're not always tying the same, the same types? Because I had a good look at your patterns that you have on your website and You've got a pretty good range right there. Yep. I part of I, I lean heavily towards the nymphs and subsurface because that's primarily how I fished. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was still in Illinois, it would be a three and a half bar or drive just to get to good trout water. And let's say I fish for four to six hours, and then it's another four hours back. So I'm doing more driving than fishing. 
And when you get up here, there's rarely ever a hatch or a fall. Yeah. So I'm going more subsurface. So that's more where I focused in on, and that's more of what I tied. Um, last couple of years, I've been paying more attention once again to dry flies and have forgotten how fun it is just to have this you know, little fly go by and just, it disappears. <laughs> There's nothing better. I, I, I mean, I'm so visual with that stuff. And when, like you say, when you see that fly disappear, there's something special. But I got to admit, I find I find tying dries a little more challenging than nymphs because I, I, I'm like you. I spend a lot of time tying nymphs, but when some of these elaborate dries come along, it's like it, it's going to take a little more time, especially when there's a deer or elk hair involved. De definitely, definitely. And part of my tying philosophy, as I call it, is I'm a lazy fly tire. Why would I want to tie a pattern that has seven different materials and 15 steps when I can cut some stuff down, play with it, and for me, it's a good pattern with five materials and 10 steps? Yeah, yeah. So there, there's a lot of good patterns out there that are wonderful, but there's a lot of steps to them. I don't want to tie them unless somebody asks me, would you tie this for me? Right, right. I, it's amazing how valuable some of those tutorials are because I lately I've ventured out because I'm a stillwater guy for the most part and I'm just I'm trying to get into tying more river patterns, and I was doing a uh, Goddard's caddis and I I I I forget what I googled you know Goddard's caddis and I'm watching these guys and it was Charlie uh, is it Charlie's fly box, but Charlie. Yeah, so so he's got this this spun deer hair Goddard's, and then he's putting it over a kettle, and I'm like, I never would have thought that. He's like pro tip, you know, put it over the steam, and then and then the when you're shaving the hair, it just makes all the difference in the world. Have Have you done that? No, no, because especially when it comes to deer hair, I I can barely manage to get a a deer hair wing on a caddis, <laughs> much less much less something like make you know a multicolor popper out of one i love your honesty because there i think as tires as good as we could be in certain genres there's certain patterns that we're always going to struggle with it one and it's not even struggle it's just maybe you don't tie them a lot right how yeah. how important is it to just keep hammering at those patterns so if you want to learn a certain pattern that that maybe what would your advice be to somebody that's like well i don't think i can do that just what would you say to them you can do it now and, and you can fish it. I've seen so many people, oh, I tied this and it looks like junk. So what? Fish it anyway. Tie it again. You'll get better. I can take a look at some of the ties I first, flies I first tied when I first started to do the business back in 2015. Compared to the, the same pattern that I tie now, there's, mm -hmm. there's a world's difference. They're, they're, they're cleaner. Yeah. Uh, the proportions are more what I want. Why is it? Well, in some cases, I've done thousands and thousands of that pattern. Right. And in deer hair, for instance, I've done hundreds, maybe, yeah. of various. If you don't do something and do it again and do it again, you're never going to improve. No, there's a reason practice football or practice soccer or you practice casting if you don't practice you're never going to get better and fish aren't as finicky or as bright as people think if they were that finicky how could they not notice the hook out of a griffith's net <laughs> yeah yeah and so okay so your first or your 12th isn't that good watch a video go go to a fly show and watch somebody say, hey, can you do this pattern for me? I'm having trouble with this. Can you show me how to do this? They'll do it. No. Part of being at the show is not just to sell your wares. It's to demonstrate techniques and to help people out and educate them. When you're at the fly fishing show, and let's say you're doing a tying demo, uh, what would be a common question that people have when they come up to you? Uh, 
how do you get it right? How did you come up with this? Can I do this instead? You know, they, they think that the only pattern is the original atoms. No, there's so many variations. A lot of what we tie, what in, for instance, in pertagons, pertagons are nothing more than a variation of the original pertagon. A tail, you change up the color, some tinsel, some blue. It's basically the same thing. You play with it. And so a lot of problem I have with beginners asking actually is, is whip finishing. Yeah. When they're first learning. And no, it's practice it, do it. No, this is how I do it. Does it work for you? Come on, step behind the bench. We'll work with that. Um, Can I tell you something? I sure. tied for 35 years before I learned to whip finish because I was doing it by hand. And I just, I just didn't, I looked at that tool. I'm like, I don't, I don't know why I struggled with it, but now it's all I do is, is use the, the tool. And it's, it's, it's funny how you hit it on the head there when you said it's the practice, right? It's like anything else. You're not going to be any good at it if you don't at least spend a little time. No. And, and with the tool, I could be much more precise with yes. where, where that thread's going to go and how much bulk there will or won't be. Amen. And I can. Yeah. build a taper into a collar thread collar with that hmm. let's talk about your go-to tools what do you like to use for a bobbin and i, I know you're probably sponsored by some of these companies I, I i assume but what do you like to use what's your go-to uh my go-to now is just a basic ceramic tubed bobbin with the balls at the end okay I had gone with the, and I'm drawing the name, the one with the, the, um, right. that you can tighten her. Right bobbin? Right bobbin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I started out with those a lot more when I had trouble controlling the tension with my hands. Right. Because if I needed it tight, I'd have to crank that down, the right bobbin down to do it. Now, I've got enough where I can adjust the tension a little bit more with my hand itself. So I've gone back primarily more to just your basic one, but I do much prefer the ceramic tube. That's something that we don't, at least I don't talk a lot about on this show. And, and I, I know how critical it is, is that tension on the thread and getting that exact right tension so that when you pull it down, you're not giving any slack, but you're still not going to break the thread. It's, it's, it's hard to find that balance sometimes I find. It, it is, especially when you're changing threads. Um, for instance, one of my problems in volume is I get bored after doing three dozen of a single fly. Mm -hmm. I want to change a different pattern then. And so that means now you're changing threads. And there's a big difference between UTC-70 and Vivas or Unithread. Yeah, yeah. With the tensions, the... Vivas can handle, I think, a lot more tension than the comparable size uni thread without fraying. But the uni thread flattened that out. And especially with pertagons and building a nice smooth taper and small midgets, that's important is being able to flatten that out. Yeah. Yeah. I love UTC for, for, for that very reason. But you know what's funny is I, I um, was trying spinning these, uh, these Elkara caddis, Goddard's caddis, actually, sorry. And uh, I tried that nano silk. Holy okay. mackerel. Some of those, some of those strong, you know, when you're really reefing down trying to spin some thread, what a difference that makes. Yeah. Hmm. It, it, and it's, it's the right tool for the right job that the nano silk, for, especially like you said, for the deer hair is just so much better. You can just crank it down. What do you impact. use for, for, for thread for the most part? Like, are you a UTC guy? Like, what what are you normally reaching for? Uh, it, it literally depends on what I'm tying. If I'm tying thin pertagons, mm -hmm. um, I have very little taper in a lot of them, and some I've almost taken away all the taper that I can, so they're more like a thread Frenchie. Mm -hmm. I want to use that uni thread, and I, and I spin it out so it lays flat. Okay. If I want to, if I'm doing a, a streamer or something like that, I'm going to go up to the uni thread in maybe a three-aught because that bulk is never going to be seen and you can crank down on it. 
Yeah, makes sense. I, I, I what I really like all around though is Vivas. It'll flatten out some, not as much as the Uni, but it has more strength to it. When so you can crank it down a little bit better, so I can go through patterns and change it up. I'll have to check that out. I have not tried that brand. Hmm. Now, uh, what else can we talk about? Let's talk about hooks. One of the, I mean, I think it's an often, often as tires, we kind of tie with what we have, but as you know, that hook is critical. Is there a brand you prefer to use? Is there a certain style of hooks you like to tie on? Talk to me a, a bit about that hook selection. I prefer, uh, J hooks because they do so much aerial nymphing, but I tie primarily on Tiemco and Umqua hooks. Okay. Uh, I like their strength without getting too bulky. Uh, one of the problems the last couple of years has been supply and demand. A lot of people picked up fly fishing and fly tying, and a lot of places were out, were out, were out. So, even though I'm on Uncle's Pro Guide, out out for me is out for everybody is out for me. So I had to find some other brands, and there's some good brands: Bull uh, Mill, Hens, Hannock, yeah. uh, just a few. But there's a difference. I don't like Falling Mill as much as I like Umqua, and the main reason is when I want to oversize a bead. Mm-hmm. I would tend to override the eye on the full mill more than I would on the umqua. Okay. And so when they came out with the um, new Pertagon hook, where the eye is perpendicular to the shaft, yep. that makes it a whole lot easier to oversize your bead and, and not oversize and go into the hook eye. Yeah, I know, I know exactly what you mean. What What yep. about like hook color like do you fish a lot of black are you how important is that to you sometimes i'm turned off by bright gold hooks i I don't know that's just me but i i tend to go more for the black especially for the jigs or maybe a bronze okay if if they can do that is is my preference other way if it's bright i'd actually rather go with silver and that would be more for the dries or an emerger what about when it comes to beads? Let's talk beads a little bit. Um, are you do you tie a lot with uh, tungsten? Are we talking you know brass beads, glass beads? What's your go to in beads on most of your patterns? Definitely tungsten. If you want to go subsurface, subsurface, go tungsten because you can get the same weight out of a smaller fly, or sorry, out of on a smaller bead. Mm-hmm. So let's say I want a, a bright pink bead but I don't want it to be super gaudy, but I needed to get down. I can go with a smaller tungsten and get it down than a larger brass and brass won't get down nearly as far. Even if you add lead, lead to it, lead wire. Yeah. So I do, I do mostly um, tungsten on a lot of the midges and smaller flies where you really don't want them for weight. It's more for a shiny spot, maybe just a touch weight. Brass is good. I, th- and, uh, I think tungsten sure. tungsten's one of the biggest changes in my mind. Like, I, I mean, I'm sure you can remember this. There was a time that I, I, I don't remember tungsten beads quite a few years back. And as soon as I got them in my hands, I'm like, this has some weight. This is, this is going to sink the fly, you know? Yeah, it, it's what, 200% heavier than lead? Yeah, it's amazing. And, you no, know, brass, you can't even compare. You know, if you wanted to get it down, you had to add split shot. Because brass, no, you could not neuro-nymph with brass beads. Yeah, yeah. If only they could make hooks out of tungsten, (laughs) then we'd really be fishing deep. Yeah, well, they they do have some tungsten thread. I haven't tried that. Really? Yeah. Huh, that's interesting. I don't know if we'd add that much weight to it or not. How often are you using lead wire wraps to also complement some, some weighted flies? Not as much as I used to. Okay. Uh, I used to do more. Now I'll upsize the bead because I've I tried to slim out my bodies more just 
for the printing on styles and things like that. I like that. A lot of what I'll use the lug wire for is either to push into the bead, especially if it's your standard round bead and, instead of the slotted one, to help center it on the hook and add a little bit of taper to it. So you just got to build a small dam behind the wire to the hook for, for a taper. Right. Um, I've, I played around doing some measurements and that, and in most cases, the lead wire really isn't adding a significant portion of weight to your fly. Hmm. For me, it's more about the taper and more about keeping the bead centered. Yeah, that makes sense. Especially when you're dealing with tungsten beads. I mean, it's so heavy. You pick up the lead wire wrap and it's super light, right? I mean, it's like, mm, yeah, is this really going to do a lot? But yeah. But, but what you can do, for instance, is Devin Olson compared slotted tungsten beads to your standard circle tungsten beads to the offset tungsten bead where, where the holes in at the end. And because of the amount of material that's taken out for each of them, the same one eighth inch, or let's call it a three millimeter tungsten bead for each of those weighs differently. So if you want to go, might, you know, go just a little bit heavier, a little bit lighter, you can change your style of, of bead. Right. You can put a, a round bead on a jig hook. It just won't lay as right as nice, but, if you put one of the offset beads on a jig hook, slide it out front, you actually get a little bit more weight than you do with the slotted tungsten bead. And that's more a significant weight than lead wire. Hmm. If you, if you look around your tying room and you're looking at the materials that you're using day to day, is there anything hanging on your wall that you're like, I haven't used this yet, but one day, one day I'm going to use this. Uh, yeah. Um, I've got some, uh, artificial polar bear threads. Okay. Oh, it's, it's a synthetic fiber that's supposed to replace the polar bear in that. Right. I put a little bit of it with somebody who had asked me to do a saltwater pattern. And it's like, there's, there's gotta be a place, you know, I need to use that, put a clouser minnow on a, on a jig hook for Euro nymphy. <laughs> so what what made you start zoetic flies was it did you just see a window i mean you kind of walked us through it a little bit but I'm, I'm curious your mindset when you're like it sounded like you wanted to do something you're passionate about and, and you kind of got a nudge in that direction but kind of walk us through that mindset of starting uh zoetic well i i was heavily uh, politely booted in the rear by Jason Randall, who said, go do something different. You don't have to go back into the corporate world. Follow your passion. Follow your passion. Follow your passion. Well, I love to fly fish and I enjoy tying. And goes, well, why don't you find a way to do that? Work at it. No, tie some. And so I was looking at it, doing a little bit. And then, like I had said, uh, earlier, Ben Ferinsky came into town. And so I tied up a bunch of flies for Jason for his presentations of various styles and types that he wanted to go. So he had had some display flies for his presentations and gave them to, to Ben. And I haven't stopped since. <laughs> so do, do you still love it? Like as much as and I, I know you're doing this commercially but custom tied so i would imagine not a you know you're not doing this on a giant scale you're doing a lot of custom patterns a lot of quality things do, do you find that you still have your passion to hit the vice yes especially if i don't have to crank out 60 dozen flies of one pattern maybe i do five dozen flies two sizes of this pattern and then i go over and do five dozen flies of two sizes of a different pattern. Right. It, it, I, as long as I can keep changing around and my mood, and there's some days where it's like, I don't have any orders out there right now. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to play. 
And sometimes the play things work, sometimes they don't. Yeah, I tend to play too much. I find I lose my focus. But uh, lately, watching some of these tutorials of guys like yourself and people that are spending a lot of time with certain patterns, it's like that's really, I think, how you improve your game because we all have things in our wheelhouse that we know. But I think it's good to get outside your comfort zone and try some different things. It is. By staying within your wheelhouse, and if you do it, you will improve. And if you can improve on that pattern, you can take the skills you learned and the practice to another pattern right. and then to another pattern. I, I think some of the problems that people have when they first start to learn is they want to do tie all these patterns. Pick out two or three patterns that you, you mostly use. Learn to tie those and learn how to tie them well. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's good advice. Good nuts, good finish. And then explore and then expand on tie a different type of fly that now has another technique. Maybe you're gonna do um a post and you hadn't done one before, or you're gonna hit deer hair, or maybe you're gonna try a streamer. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so for me, I have a lot of fun with just playing at the vice. And I've come I've been lucky enough to have some nice flies that came out very well out of there and i have the other ones where well that one didn't do too well because it didn't catch a fish in three days of trying to fish it <laughs> and, I, and, yeah i think that's funny though because i think sometimes it depends on kind of your stick to you know what i mean it's like um if you fish something all the time you're gonna catch something on it sooner or later but you know that the minute you spin something up at the vice you usually know if it's fishy or not yeah and what what tells me whether I'm doing something wrong or it truly is the fly, if I, I fish a stretch and I don't do anything, and I go to one of my patterns that I know works that is similar to it, meaning similar sink weight, rate, similar weight. Right. And I fish that through that same shack, section, and now I'm catching fish. Chances are it's actually the fly, not me. <laughs> Be, because technique is more important than flies as far as one fly versus the other, given the right properties to get it where it needs to go. Right. There are days where no, the fly truly makes a difference. Cause I've had days where I'm not catching anything and I'm fishing with my friends and they're fishing fly patterns that we all know work and they're catching fish and I'm not doing anything. And I switch to a different fly and now I'm catching fish. Yeah. Yeah. You no, know, it, it does, it can make, on certain days, it can make a huge difference. Yeah. Day in, day out, the pattern isn't quite as important, and I really hate to say that because I tie flies, <laughs> yeah. as important as the properties. Oh, I like that. I like that quote. The pattern weight, isn't as important as the properties. Weight, sink rate, yeah. silhouette, smooth, buggy. No, that is more important than anything in, in a fly, especially subsurface. Hmm. I'm going to ask you to put on an artist hat for a second, Tom, and and paint us a picture of your dream day. Like, is it in the driftless area? Is it somewhere else? Walk us through your dream day. What what are you chasing? What kind of flies are you throwing? Uh, who are you hanging out with? What are you drinking? Uh. Green Day is definitely up in the Driftless. And it's, if I'm not fishing solo, I'm fishing with my friends. And, you know, depending, you know, up here, we probably congregate, congregate at Jason's Randall's place, maybe have a, a quick breakfast there or something. Maybe somebody will bring something to throw in the oven for breakfast. And then meander out to the stream. And uh, we talk in the way we gab, we laugh, and then we spread out along the stream. And, you know, we may be a mile from one end to the other. And then we'll wander back and talk, check up how people are doing, you know, head into somewhere, maybe a bar. Maybe we'll go to, you know, the Driftless Cafe for, you know, a farm-to-table meal versus beer. Then we'll go back to fishing. 
and then you know, grill at the end of the day. But if, if I'm not alone in the solitude of just nature, the peace and the quiet, it's I'm with my friends. Even if the closest one's 100 yards away, I'm fishing with my friends. Yeah, I can down there, talk to them. How's it going? Laugh, joke, come back, do something else. Yeah, good stuff. What are you drinking at the end of the day uh, with that barbecue or grill? Moscow Mule. <laughs> Right on, right on. And especially in the summer, it's it's nice and cold. Just enjoy sipping it. Good stuff. If you had to look back at fly fishing, where we're at, and and I know you've seen this, but you, you kind of alluded to it, how hard it is to find materials right now. So many people are jumping onto this fly, fly tying bandwagon. I love it. But, I mean, there's so many that does it for a living, Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Is there is there anything in the fly fishing space that kind of irks you about what we're doing? I mean, where where are we at as fly fishers as a community? Um, I I think you have to take into account where in the country you are. For instance, out west, Colorado, some of those places. A lot of fly fishermen for all that water. There's not a lot of av- available area. They're combat fly fishing. A mm-hmm. uh, friend of ours, his son, he'll head out at oh dark o'clock to grab his base on the water and hopes he gets there early enough. And he brings a can of soup and he eats it cold for lunch because he doesn't want to lose his base on the water. There, I, you lose a lot of what I have out here. If I go to a spot and somebody's all there already, I have a lot of other places to go to where I can fish. So, yes, there may be competition, but there's not a lack of places to go so I can still get the solitude that I want, the peace and quiet that I want. Yeah. So for me here... A lot of the problems that people say with too many boats, too many fishermen, I don't have that. Because if, for instance, at the end of the Wisconsin season, uh, it ends in the middle of October. About an hour away is Iowa. Their trout season is year-round. What happens when it gets really crowded here? I'll just go over to Iowa. Because Iowa doesn't get nearly the pressure that Wisconsin does. So I have a vast amount of water and resources to go to Yeah, that a lot of people don't. So yeah, there's more people there and sometimes there's, you know, they don't pick up after themselves, but you hit, hit that everywhere or somebody, you know, may not know the right etiquette. Well, Somebody needs to teach them river etiquette. Yeah. You know, just yeah. pick up after your land. Make sure you no, know, you don't open a gate or anything like that. As much as how do you land a fish and how do you how do you handle a fish properly? A lot of people, if nobody's told them that, are really getting into it because they're trying to pick it up on their own. That's where, you know, they, they need help. They need mentors. That, that's where the fishing community needs to be open to all these new people coming in. Yeah, I like that. And not just jump down their throats because, you know, we're all learning, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's well said. I, I'm curious, I, I heard your dogs walking around there, and um, you mentioned you met Jason Randall as a vet um, looking after your dogs. What kind of dogs you got? Uh, right now we have a Siberian Husky mm-hmm. and a German wire-haired pointer. Wow. The, the wired hair is my hunting dog. Yeah. Yeah. Is he, is he good on pheasants? She's got a great nose. Okay. She's got a great nose, but uh, she's a little hard mouthed. <laughs> oh, that. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's like, okay, I'm going to be making stew instead of a grilled bread. <laughs> That's honest. That's honest. But, Do you use but, any of the pheasant tail? 
only for myself um, because they can be beat up a little bit and right. that good quality. So I don't use them for those I sell. Yeah, fair. I'll use them for flies for myself or for my friends. They they can get the rundown stuff. They're usually free anyway. They can't complain. That's something I think a lot of people that probably go, well, I'm hunting. I could just use this deer hair. I could just use that. There's a lot of work that goes into these natural materials that we buy, right? I mean, they're treated. They're. I'm sure they're, there's a lot to it. Yeah, they they got to be cleaned. They they haven't. No, just take a look at a pheasant that you hunt. It's been running through the bush. It's been chased. It's been shot. It's been stuffed into a game bag. And now it's picked clean in that. You know, the the, the tails are beat. You no, know, usually it's most of the tails we get from the pheasant. They're a little bit beat up in that. Well, for the most part, there's no problem with using them. You still have to just clean them up a little bit, clean them off and use them. But the care that they take at the places where they're harvesting them for it doesn't happen to me when I use something from the field. Right. Yeah. That makes but sense. there is a satisfaction of, I got this bird, I'm using its feathers for it. Um, a friend got a turkey last season. He gave me some of the feathers for, for that. I'm going to be tying up some flies for him using his turkey feathers. That's cool. You no, know, something like that's neat. Yeah. No, using, yeah, absolutely. But, but for a business, I, I don't use anything that I've gathered myself. Yeah, fair. So if somebody wants to find your business, maybe get some of your custom-tied flies. Uh, we've got Tom Starmack from Zoetic Flies out of uh, Ontario, Wisconsin. Um, Tom's flies have been in, well, they've been in American Angler Magazine, uh, the book Nymph Masters. Um, he ties um, quite often at the fly fishing show um, fishing the Driftless area, Scientific Anglers, Pro Staff, TFO. Your resume's fairly long here. I'm running out of breath. <laughs> I'm, I'm Quap Pro Guide. Um, you, you'll run into Tom at the show for sure if you hit it anywhere in, in the States. Um, talk to me about what you got coming down, how we find you. So first off, if somebody wants to pick up some of your patterns or um, maybe run into you on the show circuit, where, where are you going to be and, and how do we get a hold of you? Okay. Uh, my website is zoeticflies.com, one word. Um, there is a store page on that. And if you don't see a pattern that you want, you can shoot me an e email, tom at zoeticflies.com, asking me, can you do this pattern, the style, the size, make this change? Hey, I want this pattern, but this bead. Uh, the Dripless Angler has three of my patterns that they're selling. So you can get some of them there. Unfortunately, this year, I'm actually not doing any shows. Okay. Um, due to the scheduling, they had to change the date of the Denver show. So I would have been going down to the Atlanta show, then out to Denver, and then back home. I would have been gone almost two weeks for five days of shows. Right. Um, and especially with the unknown of, because for me, this is a business how many people are going to be at the show and are they going to be buying? And so that's, that's a risk that I wasn't willing to take right now, especially in winter over 60 driving 15 days cross country by myself. Yeah. Fair. And then unfortunately the local shows that I was going to do, they canceled them. Hmm. So, so this year I'm actually not doing any shows. Uh, I hope they'll change for next year that it can, or the local shows, um, one in Madison, uh, hopefully the Hawkeye fly fishers out of Iowa, they'll be back again and I can get back to them. I haven't been there for a few years because of conflicts with the national shows. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting times, but it, it is good to see those shows going ahead and, uh, uh, we've learned, if nothing, we've learned to be fluid with the situation and, and where it's at. And thank God for online stuff. But it, it sure seems like fly tying and, and people purchasing flies and getting outside chasing fish is in a pretty good spot right now. It is. It is. There, there's a lot of new people to it. Uh, it's, it's growing. It's become more diverse, to use that word. Uh, for instance, down 
the first time I went down to Atlanta a number of years ago, that a lot of the fishermen were women and their boyfriend was walking along with them and they weren't the fishermen. Whereas at other places, it's the guys, the fishermen and the girls being dragged along. No, this is the lady is bringing her boyfriend or his, her husband along mm-hmm. and one who wants to be at the show yeah. and, and they're knowledgeable. They're not afraid to ask questions. They're enthusiastic. And then there's more and more kids at the shows. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's great too. I I really think we're in a good spot. Seems it's really been opening up. And anybody I've talked to, on the whether they own a fly shop, tie flies for a living, everyone seems pretty busy. And I think that's pretty evident by how hard it is to get some materials and whatnot, and hooks and beads and all that. Because uh, these companies are uh, well, they're they're not quiet right now. No, they're not. And no, it's. Go online, and if you can't find it at one store, look at another store, find another store. No, maybe you, you changed. Maybe you're, you know, I've had to change some places from I couldn't get this size in Tiamco Hook because they're out. I've had to go to Foley Mill or to, or to Daiichi or somebody else to get it. Mm-hmm. It's not preferred, but you need to find the material. May, no. Yeah. Believe it or not, uh, Fox squirrel fur is extremely hard to find and has been hard for a couple of years. And that's what I use on my pink hog. And so rather than buying it for dub, I am actually taking my skins and shaving them down to create my own dubbing. Ah, you're getting creative over there. I like it. You know, that that's what they do. But you no, know, for me, it's easier just to, okay, I want this because there's not as much under fur in the package that I buy. Right. Versus me having to to get it out of there a little bit. Yeah, good stuff. Well, thanks, my friend. Tom, I really appreciate you taking the time tonight to sit down, talk tie, and talk all things Zoetic Flies with us. And it's it's really good to catch up. And uh, let's let's stay in touch and, and do another one of these soon. Definitely. you got to let me know when you're going to be out in the Driftless. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, sign me up, 100%. You've been listening tonight to a chat with Tom Starmack from Zoetic Flies, Custom Tide Flies. Check him out at zoeticflies.com. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.